Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name is Toby, as it always is, and today I'm delighted to be speaking to Dr. Clarissa Rios Rojas. Clarissa has a background in molecular biology, and she now works on science advice for policy at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge. The centre's rather glamorous mission is to evaluate and reduce the risk of human extinction or the collapse of civilization. Clarissa is also a member of the Global Young Academy, where she was the lead on the Science Advice Working Group. And before moving to the UK, where she now lives, she has lived and worked in her native Peru, Finland, Sweden, Germany, Australia, Italy, Peru again, and Switzerland. Clarissa, that's a long list of countries. Thank you so much. Yes, I had the opportunity to be uh, in different places, and I guess that goes together with uh, my nomad style of life and really enjoying meeting new cultures and new people. So it's an itchy feet thing. Has it always been a plan to travel or are you just following where your career takes you? Uh, I think both. But uh, yeah, it has been where the opportunities uh, open up and where I also like to go. I guess I shouldn't be so cheeky as to ask you if you think you're settled now in the UK. (laughs) Well, for the next three years, for sure, I'll be in the UK. Uh, working at the University of Cambridge. Right, at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. There seems to be a few of these kind of uh, hybrid research centres think tanks springing up with very funky, almost science fiction names. Uh, I spoke with Peter Gluckman a few episodes back and he's just founded the Centre for Informed Futures in New Zealand. Yes. I know Oxford has the Future of Humanity Institute and Cambridge is studying existential risk. It sounds like a very broad ambition. What's it all about? Yes, so at the at the center, what as you mentioned, what we are trying to do is to dedicate our research to the mitigations of risks that could lead to the to human extinction of civilization collapse, and we do it in a very transdisciplinary way. My colleagues are philosophers, molecular biologists, economists, lawyers, and we are all together trying to. Um, to mitigate these risks. And our focus is on technological risk, biological risk, also everything that is associated associated with climate change and artificial intelligence. Right, it sounds fascinating. And your background is molecular biology. Do you get to do any of that now? Well, it depends. Sometimes we have some projects that are related to bioweapons or uh, engineer pandemics, for example, and our expertise is required on that. But through the years, I have been learning a lot about other fields like uh, artificial intelligence and climate change and circular economies recently. So it's a very broad uh, type of topics. Yeah, broad topics, yes, but also... It strikes me an equally broad range of solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you want to protect against a, a rogue AI taking over the world, I don't know, presumably you have to regulate AI or get smarter about how you design things or something. Um, meanwhile, if you want to stop a terrorist from creating a superbug that kills everyone, I guess you need to try and control access to certain material. I mean, I don't know, right? I have no idea. But my point is, does the broad class of existential risk really have enough in common that we can usefully have a center for studying it all together? Can there be such a thing as a single unified science of catastrophic risk? 
Well, that's actually very interesting for me because I'm part now of a project called A Science of Global Risk. And what we are trying to do is to find the answers to the question that you just made me. And for that, uh, we are deciding to focus on three different things. So one will be, what are the methods that allow us to think better about the future risks of different events? And we are mm -hmm. trying to do that using foresight methods, like future scenarios uh, and horizon scanning and so on. The second strand will be uh, to the co-creation of policy. So to engage with policymakers, with citizens, with the industry since the beginning in order to have a broader idea and, and find um, solutions that can be built by all different partners that are part of the society where we live in. And the third strand will be uh, how we communicate risk. So I guess that combining these three topics, we are going to try to find and push for an agenda that really can englobe, as you mentioned, um, and create a creative and concise uh, science of global risk. Okay, and the hope is, or the theory is, that this approach can still be helpful even if it's neutral about the source of the risk, about the actual thing that causes the catastrophe? Yes, so we are thinking that, for example, when an event happens, it could be that has different sources, but what's going to probably happen is that different systems are going to collapse in a relatively similar way. For example, with the, with the pandemic, for the COVID-19, we're seeing how the different uh, systems started to one by one start collapsing. And then we have to think about policy solutions. So with this science of global risk, what we want is to be ready, to be prepared, to know what may happen and to have different ways how we can navigate through this uh, risk in order to manage it. So the, the source of the... Catastrophe could be anything from uh, a mad AI to an asteroid smashing into the Earth. But the effects are going to have things in common. That's the idea. Yes. Well, so resources are finite. Attention is finite. Political will and political capital are finite, at least for an elected government. How can you make politicians take these big ideas seriously and, and, to, and to dedicate their time and brain space to thinking about global catastrophic risk. It reminds me one advice that uh, Jonathan Foreman, who was the scientific advisor for the um, uh, Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons, told me. He said, "Every the best diplomat or the best way to engage with policymakers is to really put your shoes, your feet in their shoes and think about what they're passionate about, what is their concern. So if they are very worried about... Um, the health system, let's say. So then that will be the way where I will talk about um, bioweapons or bioengineer pandemics and how that will impact health, public health and, and so on. If it's someone that is more uh, working more in agriculture, then I will talk about probably about volcanic eruptions or the use of AI to, um, to improve certain, uh, certain systems. So I think it really depends to with whom you engage. If it's someone that is that is already interested about future generations and thinking about the the next steps that uh, parliament has to take, then it's, it's much easier to talk about a different variety and go more in depth. One of the things that we are doing now, for example, is um, create a comic, uh, a graphic comic from uh, one of our papers. And our paper is about uh, bioengineering issues that are going to be relevant in 5, 10, and 15 years. And we have, uh, we have hired... Uh, 
a comic artist and also someone that is going to make the script. And that's also one of our ways that we want to test to see if this comic can uh, make these issues more digestible for citizens, more appealing for policymakers. And then this opens a window that allow us to go and talk about all these different issues. And in this paper, which is Emerging Issues on Biotechnology, we have we talk about different things, um, not just about, for example, CRISPR or genetic editing, but also about neuronal props for expanding new sensory capabilities or the use of synthetic biology for phytoremediation, rivers and, and lakes, or enhancing carbon sequestration. So these are issues that could be relevant for different things, for the economy, for agriculture, and for health. So it really depends with whom do you talk. And then I will think about quickly in my mind, like, okay, I will talk about this this event that may be a catastrophic event in the future. Yeah. So as a shout out to, to posterity, we're recording this right in the middle of the pandemic of 2020. I feel like maybe when it comes to giving science advice on these topics, perhaps politicians and policymakers might be a bit more receptive to these kinds of conversations now than they were a year ago. Yes, I think that a year ago, talking about this type of uh, risks has been a bit uh, problematic because it's not on the priority agenda of uh, many policymakers. But what COVID-19 has shown us is exactly how this type of uh, studies and and policies have to take place now in order to prevent what we are seeing now, that it seems that we are not prepared. It seems that we are not um, thinking how the economy, the transport, the health has been impacted or will be impacted and how we can uh, present solutions that are not, uh, let's try it and see how it goes, but we have enough scientific evidence that is gonna tell us that this solution may be the most adequate for this type of risk for example. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yes, definitely this um, COVID-19 has been really um, catastrophic, let's say, but it has opened an opportunity for everyone working on these fields and also for citizens to understand uh, how important it is to be thinking about the future. And not only that in, we are talking about 200 years, but maybe five years, 10 years, and then we have another pandemic, maybe, or we have a volcanic eruption and how is that going to affect the infrastructures that we are having now and how do we have to think about the future of cities and agricultural food systems etc hmm. well so having invited you to be optimistic in that way i'm also a bit worried about about the optimism i mean i can see that covid19 has helped with the elevator pitch sure nobody now is going to say oh no we don't need to worry about existential risk in the future but will people still be saying that when this period of intense focus is behind us in a year or two or ten or whatever it takes i mean how do you keep the conversation going how do you persuade policymakers to keep one eye on the existential risk ball as it were even when we're all going back to worrying about more day-to-day -day things in society? I think that as a society, we have to think about a holistic approach. In one way, it could be that we ask ourselves, what are we learning from COVID-19 and what are we going to do about it? So 
what we can do, for example, is to push that our governments create an office that is just focused on thinking about future events or thinking about um, global risks. And then some more funding, if they are already created, is allocated to them. It could also be that uh, we think about the educational curricula of higher education. For example, in universities, can we incorporate uh, global risks within philosophy, economy, uh, biology, and see how this also impacts our future uh, policymakers or advisors. And it's also important to educate citizens because they are the ones electing our current, uh, the current people that is uh, having very key positions at government. And if they understand what global risks are and how we can manage them, I guess that they will also be pushing for these things to their to the people that they elect. So I think that we need to do a lot of jobs at different levels and then um, do it as a society all together, not just, not just scientists, not just academia, industry or policymakers, but citizens as well. All right. So let's say you've got a politician in front of you and you've done that initial work. You've persuaded them to listen. They accept this is something they should be taking seriously. What do you do now? What, what do you offer to help them navigate this challenge? I think that uh, a lot of um, evidence has already been created by different centers, as the ones that you mentioned, that they have uh, uh, very funky names, like, for example, the Center of Future Intelligence. So they have already produced evidence about, for example, why do we need to use ethics with artificial intelligence in times of crisis? Or uh, how can we use artificial intelligence to prevent the collapse of food systems? during a crisis. So I guess that the first step will be to put them together and train scientists, of course, to deliver things that are concise and to the point and engage in conversation, a bi-directional conversation. And what I will also suggest is to include citizens in this conversation. All right. So this is quite an ambitious end goal. At least it seems that way to me. What's the process here? What steps do you need to go through to make it happen? Well, my job uh, right now is at the local level, let's say internal level at, at CSER where I work, which is to um, create a report based on all the policy engagements that they have had and have um, before, during and after recommendations on how to do a successful policy engagement with policymakers, with the industry and with uh citizens. Mm -hmm. And after that, I will also, it's my plan to create a scoring system that can help uh, our researchers in our center to think about, since the beginning, about what's the policy impact, impact going to look like for that specific research that they are doing. And then at an international level, what I'm planning to do is to do uh, two co-creation workshops where I bring policymakers, uh, different st stakeholders, the industry, citizens, and just put them together to talk about what do we need to create a framework for a science of global risk. Is it that we need to educate citizens? Is it that we need to reform the United Nations? Is it, we don't know yet. How do we, if it's a political problem, Maybe policymakers understand where are the risks, but it's a political suicide to spend all their time on that because they are not going to be re-elected. So what we want is to really find the answers and then based on that, create some uh, recommendations on how to create this framework. And on the second workshop, what I want to do with all our partners which are, um, for example, the International Network for Government Science Advice, International Science Council, the Biological Weapon Convention, the Inter-American uh, um, 
Global Change Institute is to, okay, we have these nice recommendations. How do we push for this agenda from our fronts? And how do we make sure that we test all these policy recommendations? Maybe we cannot do it at a global level, but maybe we have 10 countries that are interested on taking these recommendations and test them. And once that they are tested, we can really see if it works or not and how do we need to tweak them. Yeah. What's the, maybe you don't know the answer to this yet, but what's your instinct about the appropriate level to do this work? Is this, are you targeting mostly national level governments, the international community? Is it more kind of regional? What do you think? Well, what, for example, what COVID-19 has teach us is that everything and everyone is connected, especially in this um, globalized world. And I believe that what we need to do is an a global effort. For example, maybe what we find out in this project is that we need to incorporate it within the Sendai framework that is working on risk and is um, having all these countries uh, producing reports on how they are how they are working on these uh, recommendations, or maybe it's another situation. But uh, I think it has to be a global effort. But then at the moment that we really want to test if it works or not, it should be at a local way. That's why I mentioned that maybe we have one country or two countries that, that try it and then see what really is happening and how we can make it happen in a global way by learning from these experiences. Okay. And when you say test it... I mean, how, how do you test this kind of stuff? Presumably, you're not going to engineer uh, some, some catastrophe. You're not going to produce a, a deadly virus just to see if the plant you put in place are the right ones. Yes, that's true. But that's why I mentioned that one of our strands in this uh, project is uh, the foresight methods. So with foresight, we can really play around future scenarios and present uh, different um, crisis that could happen and then we together examine them and think about what are the different paths that we could take in order to have different uh, outcomes and then we can evaluate those outcomes and then we can create like a protocol that show us so this is the in priority if the food system is the one that is hit first maybe we should follow this protocol if it's the transport system the one then maybe we could go and follow this one okay i see so the aim is to have uh, a set of well thought through hypotheticals. And then when a real crisis hits, maybe you, maybe you have, I don't know, an instruction sheet and a, and a pile of envelopes or something. And the, <laughs> and the sheet says, OK, is the financial system under threat? Then open envelope 17. Or is the food system under threat? Open envelope 9. And then inside the envelope is a little handbook which says, OK, we've thought about this. Here's what we reckon you need to do. A, B and C. Yes, but maybe we can even make it more interactive and it's not uh, a book, but it's uh, a platform. It's, it's online and you can just navigate through it by clicking it and then see what's, what are all the recommendations that have been given in which year and based on which evidence on, or based on which uh, events from the past, things like that. So that's more or less what we uh, envision, like to have like a, like a doomsday a scenario where you can just go and, and, and find where, it, because you need solutions fast, right? That's what we are seeing now. You need to take decisions and they need to be, um, yeah, you, you need to have all these uh, variety of um, choices at hand. Okay. Then that leads me on to a, a practical question then. And this is something that crosses my mind 
because of an observation that, that Peter Gluckman from Inksa made uh, when I spoke to him a few weeks ago. So he's been looking at, or he and his colleagues have been looking at, how science advice has been used during the COVID-19 pandemic and how that's affected health outcomes, public health outcomes for each country. And one observation he made is that there are countries that, I think in theory at least, had some quite sophisticated risk evaluations and pandemic action plans and infrastructure and so on in place. So countries that had at least done some of the kind of homework in advance that you're talking about. And then there are other countries that have not done that. And his observation, at least from what he's seen so far, as I understand it, is that it doesn't seem to have actually made much difference in terms of the success of the response. And the reason for that is that actually when the pandemic hit, most of those plans and preparations simply weren't used. Countries either forgot they had them all, threw them out of the window and started engaging directly with what was happening right there and then. So that's an anecdotal observation, I think, rather than a solid conclusion. He's still collecting evidence for sure. But nonetheless, does that problem of the risk of, uh, of panic worry you? Or to put it another way, what can you do to make sure that the tools you are developing, which a country might well sign up to with good intentions, actually get used when the proverbial hits the fan? Well, I think that there are different... Uh things that I can observe. Maybe one could be that um, the whole government needs a reform if it's true that there was, I mean, it, it is true. We know that there were these protocols already in place and they didn't use it. Maybe they didn't know they have it. So then we have a problem of organization and knowledge management. And then the other thing that comes to my mind, it could be that there are political reasons and it depends who is in, in power and what they decide to do and why, what their beliefs are. Do they uh, embrace scientific evidence or not? And we have seen how some countries have just um, gone out from the climate change pact, for example. And those are um, political decisions. It has nothing to do with what has to be done at this moment in time and what's more uh, beneficial for citizens around the world. And those two observations are the things that we need maybe to prioritize prioritize is to think about who we elect and the second will be how how good is our knowledge and management within the our governments that makes sense although i i do kind of think we are always going to have to live with these kinds of issues in democracies i wonder if also if it's something to do with finding ways to improve our foresight i mean i wonder if one of the issues with what happened with covid19 in the early days is that we simply cottoned onto what was happening a bit too late. By we, I mean at least some governments, some scientists. By the time we realised what was happening, the dominoes had already started falling. That could explain uh, also why the carefully laid pandemic plans weren't so carefully used in the end. I mean, foresight has to be a big part of it, right? A part of the foresight method is to think about weak signals that now they look weak, but then later they become a very important and serious. And in this case, we can use the, the word catastrophic again. And that's why foresight is such an important part of our work to think about all these methodologies and use different examples and make people working uh, at key places to think about this and think about the future and again, what they can do from their fronts in order to prevent it or in order to be better prepared to manage it later. And I would also like to mention that uh, foresight, it's not widely spread 
among the scientific community. And that's something that uh, the moment it worries me and maybe should be better thought about different mechanisms on how to do it uh, better. And uh, Science 20, which is this, um, the, they are advising the G20 summit that is happening in two months. They are very well focused on foresight and thinking about policy recommendations on how to uh, incorporate foresight for different topics like uh, circular economy, health, the digital revolution, and so on. And we are going to see some uh, some of their work in the G20 book that uh, they are producing soon. CSAR is part of it, so that's why I, I know about this at the moment. What's the current state of your project? Where are you up to? Uh, what's the next step? What gaps are there? Uh, the workshops that I'm planning to do are probably going to take place in April next year, and that will be the first one. And I'm looking for policymakers that are interested in these topics to be uh, invited to these workshops. So if someone is uh, wants to come, please just uh, drop me an email and uh, I can explain you more about it. Right. Well, you, you heard it here first. Yeah, <laughs> but not only policymakers, but also different experts that are interested in this, uh, what could be a science of global risk. So please feel free to contact me. And how might they do that? Well, they could, uh, they could go to LinkedIn, Clarissa Rios Rojas. Uh, usually I publish there everything that is happening with the project and with our center. And on Twitter, I'm a little bit more uh, active. So I will share more articles related to my uh, expertise and to things that are close to uh, global risks. And I also created an Instagram account, which is more for inspiring future generations of scientists interested in policy and on science diplomacy and science government advice. And it's called... <laughs> Being a scientist is cool. I could not think of a better name. So <laughs> my target audience are uh, younger people. So you can also find me there. Well, Clarissa, from our conversation today, I think you're a perfect example of why being a scientist is cool. I've <laughs> very much enjoyed talking to you. I will follow your project with great interest. Perfect. Thank you so much. And excellent uh, podcast. And I'm also really looking forward to hear at the other experts and learn from them. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by SAPEA. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. SAPEA is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, and you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elizaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.